Seven verses, y'all hang with me this morning. Maybe not the most riveting reading you've ever done, but it is the Word of God. And I hope, I hope, I hope this morning that we're able to show you the relevancy of it, all right? So Leviticus chapter 19, beginning in verse 1, God's Word says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. When you offer a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it or on the day after, and anything left over until the third day shall be burned up with fire. If it is eaten at all on the third day, it is tainted, and it will not be accepted. And everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity, because he has profaned what is holy to the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from his people. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edges, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another, you shall not bear my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you until all, all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall not do injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. If a man lies sexually with a woman who is a slave assigned to another man and not yet ransomed or given her freedom, a distinction shall be made. They shall not be put to death because she was not free. But he shall bring his compensation to the Lord to the entrance of the tent of meeting, a ram for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering before the Lord for his sin that he has committed. And he shall be forgiven for the sin that he has committed. When you come into the land and plant any kind of tree for food, then you shall regard it as, as fruit, its fruit as forbidden. Three years it shall be forbidden to you. It shall not be eaten. And in the fourth year, all its fruit shall be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. But in the fifth year, you may eat of its fruit to increase its yield for you. I am the Lord your God. You shall not eat any flesh with blood in it. You shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes. You shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. You shall not cut, make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. Do not profane your daughter by making her a prostitute, lest the land fall into prostitution and the land become full of depravity. 
You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out and so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord, your God. You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man. And you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. When a, sojourner, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. And you shall love him as yourself, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You shall not do wrong in judgment, in measure of length or weight or quantity. You shall have just balances, just ways, just ephah, and a just hen. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and you shall observe all my statutes and all my rules and do them. I am the Lord. Let's pray to the Lord together this morning. Heavenly Father, What a sobering, comforting reminder that you are our Lord. That you reign over us and you reign over our lives and you reign over the world that we live in, over the society that conflicts us, over the hardships and circumstances that we face. That you are the Lord above every single one of those and above every one of those you reign. And in the kindness of your Lordship, you have adopted us as your children. And having adopted us as your children, having allowed us to know your mercy and your grace so intimately, Lord, you have called us to live out a morality that reflects your character and glory in the world that we live in. I pray this morning. I pray for believers that have had their beliefs undermined by modern arguments. I pray, God, this morning for those who are far from you, who have been swept up by the stream of modern logic so that they see hypocrisy and hypocrisy only everywhere they look in your word. And I pray, oh God, I pray for clarity. I pray that you would buttress our faith. I pray that you would call the lost unto unto yourself. I pray, Father, that you would show us the truth about yourself and the truth about ourselves and the truth about your word and that you would be so kind as to open up our eyes, open up our minds, open up our ears so that we can have have understanding and passion about what you have said. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So Leviticus, and this is, might surprise you a bit, Leviticus may just be the most relevant book to modern discussions. We talked last week about how a lot of the time uh, our reading plans, like Leviticus is the place they go to die, like we make it through Genesis, we make it through Exodus, and then we get to bodily discharges and we're out, right? Like very often we get to Leviticus and it dies. But the truth is, the truth is that when we look at the conflicts that we're seeing and the questions that we're hearing and, and the, the, the arguments that are being made against our faith, Leviticus actually becomes ground zero for those articles, uh, those arguments. And it might seem strange to you because we're sitting here and it's saying, you know, don't plant two different seeds in your field or wear a shirt that is made of two different materials. And you're like, bro, I want to be with you, pastor. I want to know, I want to feel like that's relevant, but I'm already so lost, I don't even care, right? And what's interesting, though, is that when you start thinking about the arguments that are being made, what do they say? What, what do they sound like? 
if you believe that adulterers, if, if you believe that adultery, sexual immorality is the same as it's defined in the Old Testament, doesn't the Old Testament say that we should stone adulterers? So why is it that you uphold this ethic in your church, uphold this ethic in your families, uphold this ethic in, in your own lifestyle, while at the same time not upholding the, the ethic of stoning the adulterers, the, the law of stoning the adulterers, right? And, and, and for many people, that seems like it's arbitrary. It seems like it's convenient that we have chosen those laws that are convenient to our lifestyles. We've chosen those laws that are convenient to our belief system. While we have dismissed those that would bring hardship and would bring difficulty to us. We might even think, like just before this in chapter 18, I want to read this one just because it's one of the ones that comes up most often today. But in chapter 18, verse 22, it says this, You, and and it's speaking specifically to men, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And then at the end of verse 19, in the passage that we just read, it says this, You shall not wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of... Of materials, And for a lot of us, there feels like there's a tension there. There feels like there's, there's a convenient arbitrariness to the arguments that we're making that, that on one hand, homosexuality would be an abomination unto the Lord. But on the other hand, I'm not wearing, I'm wearing shirts that are made of many, matter of fact, I went and I checked. And the t-shirts that we give out to our teenagers and to all the people that are baptized, they're actually 50% cotton and 50% polyester, right? So it looks like even as a church, we are living in defiance of the law of God, in defiance of what God has said. And so how is it that we are to reconcile this? Is it simply political convenience or lifestyle convenience or the accommodation of comfortable sins into our lives? Is it a blatant hypocrisy where we just say that these are the things that matter because we hate them or we don't like them or they make us uncomfortable and these things really aren't a big deal just because they don't really bother us very much? Like, how do we make that decision that we're going to uphold part of the law and dismiss part of the law? And then how do we mix into all of that the fact that Jesus said, that we have been set free from the law, that the law has not been abolished but fulfilled. And as a matter of fact, we have been totally set free and liberated from the law. In fact, we could even see John this morning. And it says in our text that you shouldn't mar the edges of your beard. And John the beard blend, his edges seem a bit shaped to us. And so we see here, even among the people of God, even among the elders of the church, it appears as though perhaps, perhaps if we are under the weight of the law and are responsible for the law, that we are living hypocritically to the law. So do you see the conflict? And maybe you've heard this before. I wonder if there's some of you that are even struggling with these very arguments. This is the primary argument of the day. You understand, this is a place where we can lose our faith. Faith can be lost here in more than one way I think we're going to see over the course of today. And I wonder if some of you have sat in college classes or you sat around discussion tables and dinner tables and these questions have come up and your own faith has been compromised. Your own faith has been filled with with cracks of doubt as a result of that. And the foundation seems to be eroding and fading away. So what I want to do is we're actually going to cover this over two weeks. And it's important that you're here for both weeks to come and to see how all of this fits together. I just didn't think you'd want to be here for two hour for a two-hour sermon, so I decided to, to break this in, in half, okay? But it's going to be important for you to be able to see all of it to come both weeks. But what I want to do is I want to show you a way that the Scriptures interpret the law. 
so that now we can begin interpreting the law in the same way that the Bible, that the New Testament interprets the law. The New Testament is really a commentary on the Old Testament. It's a fulfillment and a commentary on the Old Testament. And so it's the New Testament that enables us to be able to interpret the Old Testament in the way that it ultimately reveals Jesus in a way that ultimately communicates the gospel, which is exactly what we've been after in the big story the whole way. And I want to teach you how to interpret the law so that you can see what part of the law carries forward, if any, and what part of the law has been, has been fulfilled and satisfied, if any, so that you can be, begin living in pursuit of Jesus in a way that is not arbitrary in a way that does not feel hypocritical, so that you can begin to respond to the conversations that your children have and your grandchildren are having, and maybe the people at work are, are having, so that you can be able to respond and be prepared at any time to give a kind and gentle defense of the faith whenever you are called upon. This morning what I want us to look at are three divisions of the law. Three divisions of the law. Now, if you're going to hear these and think, man, that is really smart. I, our pastor is so impressed. They're, they didn't originate with me, all right? Th- these, are, these are not Cody's ideas. In fact, John Calvin said these more than 500 years ago, and they are really helpful ways. They're incomplete. They're an incomplete way to view the law, but they're a helpful way to view the law and a helpful way for us to understand and why it appears that some parts of the law carry forward while other parts of the law don't appear to carry forward. And I think what we're going to see next week is how the incompleteness of these three categories finds its ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment in the law of Christ. And I think, I hope, I pray, I'm seeking that that will be an even more satisfying sermon for you. All right, so the three categories of the law that we're going to see this morning are the civil law, the ceremonial law, and the moral law. The civil law, the ceremonial law, and the moral law. And the reason that I chose Leviticus 19 as our passage is because it contains all three types of these laws. And they're laid side by side with one another. Originally, what I wanted to do is walk you through the whole thing and highlight all the different ones. I just didn't really feel like you guys were in a lecture type of mood, so I didn't think that would be the best use of our time. But what I want us to see is that there are these three categories of the law. And as we begin to understand what these categories are, what their significance is, and why they might or might not carry forward, it gives us a way to begin interpreting the law that is not arbitrary. In fact, it gives us a way to begin interpreting the law, which is quite theological and quite helpful and quite practical in our own lives, quite practical in our own understanding of the gospel, so that we can follow Jesus more faithfully in our lives and teach him and love him and have greater assurance in our salvation and greater joy in abiding in Christ. So the first category that I want us to see this morning is the civil law. The civil law. That these are the laws that instructed Israel on how to live and operate as a society. Now you understand that in the Old Testament, the people of God was a geographical, theocentric, theocracy, theocratic uh, government. All right, they, they were their own kingdom, their own place. Like you could literally drive and it says, and cross over the border, and there's a sign that says, Welcome to the kingdom of God. You know what I'm saying? Like, welcome to sweet home Alabama. Like, welcome to the kingdom of God, governor of the King David, right? I mean, like, like, there was a time in which you could enter into the place, the geographical boundaries of the people of God. And so God gave them particular laws, civil laws, that they were to use in their, in their culture, in their society, that would uphold God's character among them. 
that would set them apart as a nation, that would give them just ways of dealing with one another. Uh, an example would be verse 20 that we just made, that we just read in chapter 19. It says, If a man lies sexually with a woman who is a slave assigned to another man and not yet ransomed or given her freedom, a distinction shall be made. They shall not be put to death because she was not free. So in other words, it's giving you a a a a a lens through which you can make a judgment call through which you can dole out civic punishments. Now, we don't do these in the church today, do we? But these were a way that the government and the kingdom of God was able to operate and able to have penalties that went along with their their laws, a way in which they were able to, to issue judgments that would honor the Lord and worship the Lord and would help the the society be a unified people and be a moral people and be a healthy people. Things that were woven into the fabric of their culture that were to be beneficial to them. So why then, why then do we not uphold those today as the church? Well, in the new covenant, a seismic shift takes place. In the New Covenant, a seismic shift takes place. Jesus says to Pilate, I have this on the screen behind me. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I may not be delivered over to the Jews. But, 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 my kingdom is not of this world. This is a civic, right? Like Jesus says, if... if This was a civil government that I was establishing. If I was establishing a kingdom within geographical boundaries, then my soldiers, my disciples would stand up and they would draw the sword and they would defend me and they would fight unto the death. You would not be able to crucify me. I would call down legions of angels from heaven and there would be warriors unlike any you have ever seen and I would destroy the Roman Empire and I would uproot all the empires of earth and you would come in and there, this would be a kingdom that would be unshakable. But, but, but I am a king. I am building a kingdom. And it's just not what you're used to. It doesn't have geographical boundaries. That when we go into the, to the new covenant, that the, that the new covenant people of God are not a geographically centered people. In fact, to believe that they are a geographically centered people is to dilute the beauty of who God's people are. It's to dilute the beauty of who God's people are. Instead of being a geographically centered people with a single government and an army and, and a king and all those things that we have here on earth, they are a single, they are a people that is spiritually bound with one another that is being collected from every nation on the earth. That people of all different ethnicities, people of all different backgrounds, people with all different languages, that the Spirit has descended and is working through the church to draw all of them unto a single holy nation, Peter says in First Peter. That we are being bound together, and so we have brothers, we have members of our country, of our home, that live in Africa, in Asia, in Australia, to the very ends of the earth, to the most farthest frontiers that you can imagine. Those are our people, but we live for a little while in other nations. We live for a little while in America, or in Eswatini, or in Great Britain, or in the Ukraine, or in China, or in North Korea, or in the Middle East. We live for a little time in a geographical area right now, even though this isn't our home. So those civil laws, those civil laws has been, has been, have, been, have been delegated to those governments. 
Those civil laws under the hand of God have been delegated to those other governments. And now we have been given an ethic by which we live that enables us to be salt and light within this country, within the societies that we are placed. So that now, now we are doing the work of Christ and, and we are advancing the cause of Christ, not in a political way, not in a, not in a geographical sense, but in a spiritual way. In, in, in a way in which God is calling people unto himself, that God's people are no longer defined by geography and borders, that God's people are defined by his spirit. And this is one of the ways that Hebrews 8 means when it says that the old covenant has been rendered obsolete by the new covenant, that the old covenant has been displaced by the new covenant, that the old covenant had one group of people living in one land, being separated by their laws and their statutes given to them by their God. But the new covenant people, the new covenant people are not bound by geographical boundaries. The new covenant people are not bound to a continental divide. The new covenant people are bound together instead, regardless of where you are, regardless of where you live, regardless of how you speak, regardless of what your culture is, by a single spirit. Because Jesus' kingdom, it's not of this world. The second category that I want you to see is the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law. Now, this was a big category for Israel. This had to do with how Israel would worship their God how they would express their love for him. It's their rituals and their regulations. It's the things that were intended to make them distinct and to mark them as holy because of their devotion to Yahweh. So you can think back to last Sunday when we're talking about the Day of Atonement. All of those would be included in the ceremonial laws. When we talk about all of the food laws, you know, like you have to eat certain things and not eat certain things. Like you can, you can eat beef, but you can't eat barbecue, right? Like, like all of those kinds of things. All of that is the ceremonial law. And all of the ceremonial law was intended to communicate was it was intended to communicate that pe these people had been consecrated and set apart by a holy God. That they were not like the other nations that would mix in the other false gods. They were not like the other nations and that they would integrate these cultures that revolved around cultic ritual. Instead, they were solely, entirely, purely devoted to a single God. And that single God would provide for them, he would protect them, he would defend them, and he would save them. And so they would identify their total dependence upon him through these rituals and ceremonies. A good example of this would be in uh, verse 19 of what we read today. It says, you shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. That the intent there is to set these people apart. It's not because two different cloths are inherently more holy than one piece of cloth. It's, it's the message that it's intended to communicate. It's the spiritual message given behind something that is ritualistic. And it's to communicate every time you put on your shirt, I am solely devoted to Yahweh. Every time I get dressed, every time I prepare a meal, every time I offer a sacrifice, the whole pr premise behind all of it is, is that I have been set aside and I have the presence of God abiding with me in our midst and he will defend me and he will provide for me and he will protect me. And so with all that I am, with all that I wear, with all that I do, with all that I eat, with everywhere that I go, with everything that I say, I'm set apart. I'm set apart not because I am special, but because my God is. Because my God is. 
But as we saw last week, the ceremonial law was a shadow of the good things to come. The ceremonial law was a shadow of the good things to come. That no longer is our meeting place in a particular location, in a particular tabernacle, temple, temple, or sanctuary. That Jesus has become our meeting place with God. He has circumcised our hearts, not our flesh, with his spirit. He has provided a single sacrifice for all time. He has set us apart by his presence dwelling within us. In fact, Jesus says this explicitly in Matthew chapter 7. Do you remember this? They come and he's under all of this accusation because it doesn't seem as though he's abiding by the food laws the way that he ought to, or that his disciples are abiding by the food laws the way that they ought to. Do you remember what Jesus said? It's not what goes into you that defiles a man. You, you think by what you eat, it defiles you or doesn't defile you. But it's not what goes into a person that defiles them, it's what comes out of them that defiles them. Do you remember Mark's commentary on that? It says, thus he declared all foods, all foods and drinks, clean, clean. That Jesus said all of that, those things were to communicate a message. They were to communicate a message. That it, and the message was not that when you eat it, you are defiled. The, the message was that what you have inside of you, what is in your heart, what is in your gut, what is in your instinct, what is in your reflex, what comes out of you, reveals who you are. And it reveals your standing or lack thereof in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus would tell you, eat your barbecue, man. Eat your barbecue. Enjoy lobster to the glory of God. In fact, in fact... Paul, and this is what I, I think is a strong message, maybe much stronger than what we realize. In fact, Paul says that it would be blasphemous if you thought that withholding barbecue and withholding, withholding shrimp and lobster from your life would make you more acceptable to God. That it would be blasphemous and even lethal for Christians to try to continue to live according to the ceremonial law as though living according to the ceremonial law would make them more pleasing. And sometimes you meet Christians that try to do this. They'll try their best to uphold the diet of the Old Testament. They'll try their best to uphold the dress of the Old Testament. They'll try their best to uphold as many of the ceremonial laws as they can. And the intent is, is that this makes me holier. That this makes me more acceptable to God. And this is exactly the heresy that was taking place in this region of Galatia. In Galatia. And what we learn is, is that not only is it dangerous for us to try to keep laws, it is blasphemous, blasphemous for us to try to uphold these laws, these dietary laws, these, these, these things that were intended for the old covenant, that we were try, if we were trying to uphold them, that says something negative. It paints the wrong picture of Jesus. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians chapter 5. He says, for freedom, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, there, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. What's that slavery? That's slavery to the law. Slavery to the law. That, that the law is a master lording over you. That the law is something that is binding your conscience and binding your thoughts and, and constraining and constricting your life in a way that spoils your life, in a way that, that doesn't allow you to enjoy the full joy that has been available to you in Christ. Look, verse 2. This is where it really turns up the heat. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, this is the same, you could, you could put food laws in here, you could put any of the ceremonial law, the sacrifice laws here. If you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. 
that if you, if you think that by upholding the law, by being circumcised in the flesh, by, by taking, doing the festivals, by, by eating a certain way, by avoiding certain foods and enjoying certain foods, by, by separating from certain people and not separating. If you think that somehow by upholding these old ceremonial laws and avoiding tattoos and avoiding uh, wearing uh, garments that are made from a single piece of, of cloth, if you think that upholding all all of those things. Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, you may not be brothers and sisters of all, at all because Christ is of no advantage to you. you. Christ has come that you might be set free from the law, and here you are living under the law. Verse 3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated under the whole law. In other words, he is a slave again. He may have said that he had been set free, he may have said that Christ abided within him, but in fact, the truth of the matter is, is that he has subjected himself to slavery and no man that has tasted the freedom of Jesus and understood the freedom of Jesus would willingly subject himself to the law. So I am here to tell you that if he believes himself accountable to one part of the law, whether it be diet or circumcision or the, or the sacrifices or whatever it is, if he believes that he is, he is obligated under one of those laws to add to the sufficient sacrifice of Jesus, that he might as well try to keep the whole law because that is his only hope before a holy God is that he is a perfect law keeper and that is a hopeless exercise and so he is adding to the impact of our slavery to the law now listen to verse 4 maybe the strongest words yet you are severed from Christ you who would be justified by the law you have fallen away from grace that if you invite slavery of the law you enjoy no part of the grace and the freedom that it brings therein that in other words if you believe that Jesus needs you to add to his sacrifice if you believe that Jesus needs your law keeping added to his law keeping if you believe that Jesus needs your good works added to his good works, if you believe that he needs your sacrifices added to his sacrifices, you are declaring that Jesus is not good enough and that Jesus is not able enough. You are making a declaration with your life that Jesus' sacrifices are not sufficient for you. It has to be your works too. You are making a declaration that Jesus' nature is not good enough for you, that Jesus' works are not good enough for you. But the truth is, brothers and sisters, that when you come to Christ, when you abide with Christ, you are credited with His law-keeping. You are covered with His righteousness. You are under His sacrifice. And to say anything other, to add anything different to that is blasphemy. It is to say that He is something less than the glorious God that He has actually is. So you can see. You can see why we can eat barbecue and you can see why we can enjoy rubber elastic woven into the waistbands of our blue jeans. I think every pair of jeans, every pair of pants on earth ought to have, an elastic, have some elastic woven in. We've gotten where it doesn't look weird anymore, right? You can see where, why civil consequences aren't in our purview and why we don't stone children who disobey their, par their parents. It's not arbitrary, convenient hypocrisy, brothers and sisters. It's fulfillment. It's fulfillment. 
Jesus is the king and head of a new nation that is being collected from every nation. We are a spiritual kingdom, not filled with political power and civil clout, but filled with spiritual power and a certain victory. Jesus is the fulfillment of a geographical kingdom so that now all people from all nations and all people and all all ethnicities are able to come and descend and centralize in a single head, that of Jesus Christ. So we're free. We're free from the civil law. With every sacrifice that was slaughtered and every meat that was abstained from and every baby boy that was circumcised, the ceremonial law was shadowing the coming of one who would lay down his perfect and infinite life as a sacrifice and set them apart by the sealing of their hearts with the Holy Spirit. So you are set free from powerless sacrifices and symbols because Christ has accomplished all of that permanently on your behalf and to reject that to reject that freedom to reject his goodness to reject his offering to reject his sacrifice and the full sufficiency of it is blasphemy see the reason that we don't uphold those laws is to uphold those laws would actually contradict the very faith that we claim to uphold those laws would actually be to stand against the very savior that we follow It's not that we're being arbitrary. It's that we have no choice because we've been set free. And the call into our life is to live in freedom. The final division that I want you to see this morning is the moral law, the moral law. You see, there's always been a part of God's law that was set apart from every other part of the law, or every other aspect of the law. There's only one part of the law that was written by the very finger of God onto tablets of stone. There's only one part of the law that was given on top of Mount Sinai as Moses is face to face with the living God, so much so that his, his glory would reflect off of his face, off of his expression in a way that would blind his compatriots here. There's only one part of the law that is given as a storm of God hovers above the people of God and scares them and frightens them in the terror of his presence. The moral law. The moral law was always intended to be set aside. In fact, if you'll remember, we read more than 25 times, more than 25 times, we give examples of the moral law in Leviticus 19. And this is where we get to what makes it different. You see, the the moral law flows out of the character of God. It reveals the character of God. It reveals the nature of God. And that's why more than 25 times we get these examples of of various moral laws in Leviticus 19, which are all either the Ten Commandments or direct applications of the Ten Commandments. And after 10 of them, what do we have? I am the Lord. I am the Lord that the moral law is rooted in the holiness of who God is. That the moral law is revealed through the creation in the nature of God, in the character of God, in the integrity of God, in the nature of God. And so, as they flow from God's own covenant, own, own character, when the old covenant with all of its, all of its laws and all of its stipulations is deemed obsolete, the, the moral law is carried forward. And it's carried forward, and we're going to see this next week, it's actually carried forward in a much greater way, that it's, it's carried forward because it is as unchanging as God's character is. That God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's one of the great 
great, most comforting maxims that we as Christians can believe. In fact, it is so rooted in the character of God that in the New Testament, the moral law is, being, is always expressed as being rooted not, not in uh, what Moses has said, but in what God made in the beginning. That it's rooted in the created order. Let me, let me give you an example of what I'm, what, what I'm talking about. So Jesus, one day, he's asked about... Uh, he's asked about divorce. Now, you know that the religious leaders of the day, they were always trying to tie Jesus into a knot. And so they come and say, all right, Jesus, give us your stance on divorce. Did God not allow divorce? You know what Jesus says? That divorce was simply a civil allowance, a civil allowance because of the awareness of sin. And as he begins to explain why divorce is so hard and why, why divorce is not part of the original plan. He doesn't go back to what Moses has said. He goes all the way back to what God has done. How God has put his character in the imprint of creation. Listen to what he says. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but they've been made one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And Paul even tells us that the picture here, the picture here is the permanence of the love that the Father has for his people, the permanence of the relationship that God has made with his people, that that Jesus says that I am the vine and you are the branches and you abide in me. And what what is the implication? That we are one, we are bound together. You can't see where you end and I begin because you are living in me and I am the life source for you, right? This is the mystery that Paul says is profound. That it is a picture of Jesus and his church. That that God brings together a man and a woman in the creation. And the idea is that they become so a part of one another, so glued to each other, so bonded to one another that you cannot pull them apart. No matter how hard you pull, you cannot take them apart because what God has has brought together, what can man do to separate? And so he roots it not in the law that Moses has did, not in the country of Israel. He roots it in the character of God imprinted upon his image bearers from the very beginning. That it's part of the morality, part of the nature, part of the essence of what makes God God. And that essence is now flowing into his creation. So what God did in Eden is what we're recapturing. It's not what we're getting away from. It's what's going to be filled in the new heaven and the new earth is this perfect intimacy with God in which God's character is radiating through all of that's going on and all of the obedience of his children and all the ethics of his children, all the morality of his children. It hasn't been dismissed. It's being carried forward. And in fact, it's being carried forward in an even greater way. I think maybe Paul helps us see this even clearer. Paul does the same thing. And I want you to watch this, the flow of logic that he uses in, in Romans chapter 1. And so in Romans chapter 1, Paul is explaining why it is that we see so much idolatry in the world. Why it is that we see such, such heinous sin in the world, even though, even though there is such a good and gracious God, even though there is a God that has made all of the world and he made it good and put his character in the midst of it. And he starts with how God has revealed his character and nature through all that he has made. Look at what he says. He says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived. How? When? 
ever since the creation of the world. Ever since the creation of the world. And where do we see these things? Where do we see God's invisible attributes being manifest? Where do we see his holy character being made clear? We see it in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So we are without excuse. That all of the creation since the very beginning has been bearing witness to the character of God, has been bearing witness to the goodness of God, has been bearing witness to the provision of God, has been bearing witness to the holiness of God, so that everywhere that we look, as the ocean crashes, as the sun rises, as the, as the moon comes every night there, there, and what we see is, the, is, a, is a declaration of the handiwork of an almighty God telling us how good he is, how mighty he is, how trustworthy he is. So what's the problem? For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those who, that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women who were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty. Now, natural can mean a lot of different things in the New Testament. Natural can mean uh, the opposite of the spirit. Natural can mean the way that you were born or, or whatever. Natural here, what it's talking about is it's talking about God's design. God's design. How God made the earth. And so he said, since they do not, did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manners of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to their parents, foolish, faithful, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice them deserve to die, they, are, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And what do all of those laws have in common? I want you to make two observations. First of all, not a single one of them are ceremonial or civil law, are they? Here we are in the New Covenant. Here we are in the New Testament. And Paul is talking about the, the character of man and the flaw of man and the depravity of man and how we are separated from God and how we are declaring our independence from God. And he's saying, look, these are what we see in their lives as they suppress the truth. As they suppress the truth about God. And what do all of them have in common? They're all the moral law. They're all the moral law. They all get to your character. They all get to your integrity. They all get to your reactions, your views, your, your love of God and your love of neighbor or your lack thereof. And so what we are able to see is that they are, are carried forward. So you can see why we, it is not in our purview to redefine marriage. It is not in our purview to redefine concepts of gender. In fact, as we're going to see next week, the New Testament not only does it remove the moral law, but enhances and intensifies the moral law because, because, because it is rooted in the character of God. And we as New Testament believers have the very presence of God, the character of God in our own lives, that the law is being written on the tablet of our heart and transforming us so that the essence of who God is is not just seen in the oceans and the sun, but it's seen in me and it's seen in you so that the character of God begins pouring out of me and pouring out of us as a witness to the world. See, the moral law is both a portrait and a mirror. The moral law is both a portrait and a mirror. 
It's a portrait of God because we can't see him. It lets us know how perfect he is, how wonderful he is, how pure he is. It gives us a tangible insight into who God is in his essence, things that that human eyes are incapable of conceiving and beholding. But it's a mirror into our lives too. It shows us who we are in reality. It's, It's not a flattering mirror. It's not a skinny mirror. It's a real mirror. It shows you with all of your blemishes, with all of your imperfections, with all of your flaws, with all of your problems. It it lays all of them out so that you can see that not even for five seconds can you uphold the law. It lets you see in all of its truth the weight of the slavery of the law. And maybe you would say, oh, Cody, but then the law crushes me. The law crushes me. What hope do I have if the moral law carries forward, if my standing before God is dependent upon the moral law and I am filled with blemishes and wrinkles and problems? What hope do I have? The hope that you have is that the moral law has been fulfilled too. The moral law has been fulfilled too. That Jesus kept every dot and every tittle, that every iota has been fulfilled by a holy and righteous Savior so that if you will come to him, you will come to him, his law keeping, his righteousness will be applied to you. This morning, what's this mirror showing you? What's this mirror showing you? Are you still adding to the sacrifices? Are you still trying to be good enough and measure up and do all those kinds of things? Or this morning, this morning is the mirror calling you forward unto Jesus? Is it calling you forward to be saved? Is it calling you forward to be set free from the weight of the law that will crush you? What I want to invite you to do this morning, we're going to have an invitation. The first time we've been able to do that in in quite some time, and I'm excited about that. We're going to have an invitation. If there are places in your life this morning in which you're trying to uphold the law, would you come and confess those? If, if maybe this morning the Lord has in some way removed scales from your eyes so that you can see the, the cohesive nature of the, of the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the law, and all the categories, and how this fits together, maybe you would just lift your hands and praise the Lord today. Maybe you need to come and talk with me, or with John, or with Andrew. We're going to be in the Connect Corners after. I'm going to be standing down front right now. You can talk to us right now. But this morning... Whatever the mirror is showing you, would you respond? Let's pray together. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, and what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon. 